Welcome to the Probate Realtor Show, your one source for selling and buying real estate through trust and probate. Hear directly from the best attorneys and trusted advisors on how executors and administrators navigate the probate process in and out of court. Being a personal representative or successor trustee can be a daunting task, and often beneficiaries don't have a clear plan. Let us help you make the right decision for your clients, your family, and your legacy. And now, here's your host, the probate realtor himself, Matias Baker Mazzucci. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode. Today, we are talking to Nick Van Brandt. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Matias. It's nice to be here. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, Nick is a partner at uh, Shepard Mullen. He is a partner in the Business and Trial Practice Group, as well as the team leader of the firm's private wealth service team. He's a member of the executive committee of the Los Angeles County Bar Association Trust and Estate Section. He is on the executive committee of the Trust and Estate Section of the California Lawyers Association. So it's an honor to have you with such an impressive resume. I had to read Sometimes, you know, we have some guests that are just, you know, like their resume, I got to go down and read. So there you have it. <laughs> Today with Nick, we're going to be talking about a very, very important topic, no matter what side of estate planning you are in, or, you know, trust and probate or whatever you find yourself in. It is vital to understand what a fiduciary duty is, what a breach of fiduciary duty is. So today we're going to be talking about a breach of fiduciary duty on the part of a successor trustee or administrator of an estate. So Nick, before, just to get started, let's explain to our audience, what is a breach of fiduciary duty? Right, so before we can talk about the breach, we need to talk about what a fiduciary duty is. And a fiduciary duty is an obligation that, that a person has to another or a set of people to act in their best interests. Mm -hmm. So fiduciary duties are definitely in the trust and estate context. They can also exist with investment advisors. Um, nice. they can, you know, any sort of person who is acting in, in an agency relationship for yeah. somebody else potentially has a fiduciary duty, but it certainly comes up in the trust and estate context all the time. And so a breach of that duty is when you don't act in the best interests of the person that you are mm -hmm. charged with acting in the best interests of. That's the most simple way to put it. That makes sense. And yeah, we also see it, you know, realtors and, and when you have an agency relationship, you know, you have a fiduciary duty. So um, now, because now we have defined what the breach of that fiduciary duty in, 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 in simple terms, um, what are some of the most common examples that you have come across in your career, specifically when it comes to uh, trust and probate litigation, um, when it comes to a breach of fiduciary duty? Sure. Um... One of the most common examples would be what is called self-dealing, mm -hmm. which is on the one hand, you're representing yourself individually. And on the other hand, you're in charge of a trust or an estate and you do a deal with yourself. Right. So that's pretty risky. It's not to say you could never do that, but mm -hmm. it, you're, you're walking in perilous ground whenever, mm -hmm. whenever you are on both sides of the same transaction. That's one area where people get into a lot of trouble. Another, you know, runs the gamut from just literally taking money from a trust that doesn't belong to you, right? I mean, that's right. also a crime, but mm -hmm. potentially, but um, misappropriation of assets. But then there's also well-intentioned breaches, I would say. Mm -hmm. One example would be you get a mailing from an unnamed uh, 
investment advisor in New York City who happens to be getting these crazy returns and you decide to invest all your money in it and then it turns out it was a Ponzi scheme. Well, you may have a claim against that uh, Ponzi schemer on behalf of the trust or estate you're managing, but your beneficiaries may be looking at you too and saying, hey, wait a minute, you should have known not to invest with, uh, we'll call him a Ernie Playoff. You know, you should have known not to invest with that person. You know, you were negligent. You acted below the standard of care. That that's another example of you know breach of fiduciary duty. Sometimes people get into trouble also when they fail to diversify a portfolio. So you put mm-hmm. everything in. You know, um, First Republic stocks. Bank. First Republic <laughs> Bank. Well, yeah, that that would be an example. Um, you know, you put everything in one stock, right? That's right. to be doing great, and then it tanks. Well. The the laws that govern fiduciaries typically say you have a duty to diversify a portfolio. Depends on what a trust and a state says, but generally speaking, that's another duty. So these are just a few examples. Let's let's go back to the Bernie, nameless Bernie example, because actually I'm fascinated by that. And I'll tell you why, Nick. Uh, you know, Bernie Madoff had a um, extolled reputation until you know, he was discovered. I mean, he was chairman of the NASDAQ. I mean, a market maker. So if somebody were, let's say it did happen in our scenario that, you know, a, a trustee, you know, did invest with, you know, seeking the best return. And it was like, look, this guy's got an impeccable resume. There's nobody, you know, and, and let's say the beneficiaries then were like, look, you know, we're going to go after you because you didn't do enough new d- due diligence. You know, these returns were unrealistic of getting, you know, 20%, 15% a year guaranteed. So, you know, you didn't, you know, that was, that was, you have to, you're supposed to be more conservative, conservative. In your opinion, do you feel that um, the, the fiduciary in this case would be in peril, even though they say, look, this person was, you know, as a squeaky clean individual, never, uh, you know, convicted of a crime, very well respected in, on Wall Street. I invested with them because of that reason. Uh, do you think that the beneficiaries would have a case? So, um, like is going to be the answer to a lot of the questions today. It depends. Okay. Um, on the set of facts you gave me, if I were the defense lawyer, that that's a very good defense argument. Mm-hmm. The questions that might arise, however, you know, in a deposition or ultimately a trial would be, well, mm-hmm. what due diligence did you do? Right. So I understand that he was squeaky clean and, you know, right. maybe he defrauded you, but what did you do to underwrite the numbers? You know, who okay. did you talk to? Did you talk to any other investment advisors? You know, what did you draw on in your expertise to determine mm-hmm. whether or not this was appropriate? You're not supposed to look, and this is an important point, you're not supposed to look at what a trustee did with the benefit of hindsight. That's not mm-hmm. fair. We're not, we don't have crystal balls, but with the information available to them at the time, did they act with the standard of care? that they needed to, to protect people whose interests they're supposed to be protecting, right? So I don't know, you know, I think that that would be, look, that'd be better than some cases where, you know, you just didn't do any due diligence and you didn't know right. the person from Adam. But, you know, I guess the, the, the real answer to your question is, yeah, maybe, maybe that would be a successful defense, right. but after how long in litigation, how much in attorney's fees that, the trust yeah. or the estate may or may not end up paying for, depending yes. on, you know, so, so I think it, that situation in the first place. So I think that kind of like the moral of the story here, if and correct me if I'm wrong, is you should err on the side of caution. Oh, you yes. know, it's ch- chances are people are not going to be scrutinizing you if you invest with BlackRock or Vanguard, you know, and in, in, in 
in the index funds and whatnot. Uh, but people, we may, you may, you know, you're at risk if you're chasing the high return, you know, high risk type of scenario. So like, just like you said. Generally speaking, that's right. And a lot of the times the, you know, what, what's interesting about trusts or estates is you'll have a will or a trust that's going to give sometimes mm-hmm. fairly specific guidance as to how right. um, the person who established the trust or the estate wanted you to manage the, the investments. So right. If they give you more latitude or if they say, you know, notwithstanding the duty to diversify, I want you to keep everything in, you know, the family business. Right. You know, that might give you some protection. Right. But again, as you said, it's always safer investments, probably better, you, you know, minimize yeah. risk definitely as a fiduciary. And we go back to a topic that it's been a lot on this show, which is the topic of for the for the uh, trustor, you know, if you have a specific idea of what you want done with your assets, like you said, this is a great reminder. If you say, you know, I think, I believe Warren Buffett, my boss has, um, has put it in his uh, succession plan that, you know, the, the, the wife can only invest in, I believe, uh, uh, S&P 500. He actually put the ticker of the, of the mutual fund that she used to keep the money in. I think something like that. I remember hearing something That's like funny. that. I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's specifically accurate, but um, now let me, t- let me ask you this. What are some of the red flags that you think that a beneficiary should be keeping an eye out for in, if they are like suspecting that something nefarious may be going on? So if, if the trustee is refusing to provide an accounting to you or is okay. refusing to provide, you know, reasonable information to you mm-hmm. in a timely fashion, that's, that's certainly a flag, right? Um, because, you know, there is generally speaking a duty of disclosure to beneficiaries. A lot of times mm-hmm. it's a duty to account, even if there's not a formal duty to account. Public policy, at least in California, is you know the reasonable information about the administration of the trust right. needs to be provided. So that that that's one red flag, right? Somebody who's who's hiding in secret. You know, another red flag is again if uh, if you see the trustee on both sides of a transaction, right? That's right. the kind of thing I talked about before. Yes, yeah. Um, you know that that's another example. But a lot of the times that. And I, I defend trustees as much or more than when I'm, you know, um, prosecuting a case, not in right. the criminal sense, but, you know, yeah, of course, as a plaintiff, but I do both. But in those in those uh, situations where you get into litigation, a lot of the time it starts with information not being provided. Got it. And yeah. that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Let me ask you about a scenario that I encounter often in my in my work. Um, as we know, sometimes, you know, when you put family and money together, there's squabbles, there are disagreements. And I deal a lot with adult children, sometimes in their 60s, who lose their, you know, last surviving parent. And then, you know, there's like three or four kids left, three or four adult children left behind. And one is the successor trustee. And first of all, there is a resentment from the other ones, because why were you chosen as a successor trustee, or just because you were older or whatnot. And I see that a lot. But where my question is going to is, when someone is concern, for instance, that, you know, their siblings would, uh, you know, bring a case against them. I see them being very cautious with the way we sell real estate. So for instance, even when I explain to people, look, the list price is only a marketing tool to get as many people to see the house. I'm not telling you your house, your apartment building, your 
dry cleaner is worth this much. I'm telling you that in order for us to get as many people in the door as we can and to send it out, we need to list it at this price. And sometimes I get the, oh my God, if, if we get only that money, I'll be worried. My, you know, my sister is going to sue me. And, and if I have to get this kind of money. So my question to you is, let's say, you know, a sister expects $5 million from an asset that is in within a trust and the successor trustee does their best to sell it, meaning the marketing, everything, there's no, it's an arm's length sale. So there's no connection. You know, the agent doesn't represent both sides. All of those good things that we know will help us in court. Um, do you feel that if, let's say, you know, the sister in this case says, okay, you know what, you didn't get 5 million, you only got four and a half, I'm still going to sue you for the rest of the money. How do you feel about that? Um, I feel like you'd have a pretty strong defense on that, that set of facts. Um, obviously, you know, as more facts come out, maybe it would change, sure. but, you know, you, you don't have, you have a duty to administer the trust prudently. You certainly have a duty to deal with trust property in a way that makes it productive. Right. You don't have a duty to maximize to a hundred percent the value of an asset, right? You're not, you're, the standard is not perfection. Yeah. Um, now there's a lot of things you can do to, to mitigate the arguments that the disgruntled sibling may have, you know, so before you're listing, you can get a broker's opinion of value that might be right. helpful, um, to get an appraiser's appraisal is actually probably a little stronger, you know, mm -hmm. something a little more arm's length because no offense to present company, but sometimes a broker is trying to get a listing. So, you know, brokers. I see that all the, uh, absolutely hundred percent, hundred percent. Right. So there's that. Um, if you're really worried, you can, um, in the trust context or actually in the estate context too, do what's called a notice of proposed action. Of course. It's something you serve to all the beneficiaries where you say, mm -hmm. I'm going to list the property and I'm going to sell it for at least this value. If you have any objections, unfortunately, it's 45 days in the trust context. If you have any yeah. objections within 45 days, um, you know, you can let me know, but then I'll petition the court. You can also then just go straight to court yeah. and ask for, you know, a court order instructing you to do it. Yeah. You can also seek, um, you can do this in the trust context too. It almost always happens in the estate context. You can also have a sale be subject to court confirmation, of right? Course. So then yes. you go in and then it's, uh, it's wild. I know, I'm sure you've done plenty of these, but you actually, you have a transaction ready to go. You give notice, not just to the people involved, but to the entire county, right? Through publication. Course, yeah. People show up and try to overbid on the property. It becomes an auction sometimes in open court. It's wild. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's a good way to test whether or not, you know, that something's in fair market value. So there's a lot of ways to protect against that claim um, from this sibling. But thankfully for my practice, you can do everything in the world you want to protect yourself and then somebody still might file a lawsuit. There's no, can't handcuff them. And so it's yeah. one of the reasons I'm in business is, is defending those types of cases, but. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, like if there is ill will, there's ill will, there's there's really nothing you could do to, to, uh, to make it go away. You right. can, however, prepare yourself to succeed. Right. Um, so, so that's, that's a very good point. Um, can you uh, share with us a notable case or experience where you successfully represented a client who, who suffered um, a breach of fiduciary duty by a successor trustee or administrator? 
Oh, yeah. Um, one of the first cases um, that I had when I entered into this field involved a brother and a sister where um, the, the family owned three or four dozen real properties um, mm -hmm. all over Los Angeles County. And the brother was the trustee, the successor trustee and the executor. And uh, he happened to have the same name as his father, just with a different Roman numeral. But there okay. were a lot of deeds that didn't have a Roman numeral on it. So uh, he just said, oh, those properties are mine. And even for the properties that did have his Roman numeral, he had, you know, that, that were in the name of the father with yeah. the proper Roman numeral. Um, he came up with all sorts of theories as to why those were his too. And mm -hmm. of course, he was also spending all sorts of money on things that were really for his own benefit rather than for the trust as a whole. And so uh, we got... It ended up in aggregate being close to eight figures in wow. damages against him. Oh. This trust it, it ended up <laughs> it ended up with me in South LA at an auction, auctioning off cars that we had repossessed of his. <laughs> to pay the judgment. It was, uh, it was it was quite a moment. My <laughs> career was pretty early on, but so yeah, so that's a pretty extreme version, right? right. Where somebody's literally just trying to steal from his sister. Yeah. Um, I won't say the name of the case, but you can find it online. There's there's several appeal opinions that came out about it. So that, that's it. what yeah. Very, very, very um very interesting. Thank you for sharing. Now, if I may get another example from you of the reverse, when you yeah. had to defend a um, you know, a successor trustee or a, a executor from litigation from the beneficiaries. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, sure. So um, one example where, um, and this is other than the brother-sister case, you have the second wife case, right? Right. This was a second wife case or second spouse, not to be sexist, but having yeah. to be second wife here. Sure. Husband died and he had named his brother as his successor trustee. Mm -hmm. And uh, surviving spouse was very unhappy about that. Okay. And she sued him for between 20 and $25 million wow. in damages for selling um, an interest in one uh, large shopping center in mm -hmm. um, Southern California and for selling an interest in the company that um, his brother had founded mm -hmm. um, and claiming that they were sold under value. So that was a big part of it. But then there were all sorts of other claims about mm -hmm. trustee fees, about all sorts of stuff. And you know, she had hired very aggressive, um, competent, but very aggressive uh, counsel who I, I don't know if they were in a contingency um, arrangement or not, but they certainly litigated it as if it were, you know, the Enron litigation <laughs> from the beginning of the 2000s. And uh, it was a complete defense verdict. Um, right. He had done nothing wrong. And what he had done there was kind of what we've talked about earlier. He really papered everything very well. He talked to advisors. He himself had a lot of experience in the area. Um, there were valuations that supported what he did, but there was an accusation of self-dealing because he happened to be a partner in one of the companies where the interest had been sold. Mm -hmm. um, but what he had done is he had bootstrapped it because he made sure it was a fair market valuation and he, it was arm's length. It wasn't just right. his having you know, ginned it up. And so that's why we were able to get a full defense verdict. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Very good. Thank you for sharing that story. Sure. Uh, let's talk, let's talk about your journey. Cause this always fascinates me. Where did you grow up? 
Uh, so I was born in New York City. Um, okay. I lived in suburban New York till I was 14. And then I moved to uh, Los Angeles at that time and went to high school here in, in the Valley. Um, I'm not in the Valley now, but was in the Valley. And then, um, and then yeah, went to college in uh, Berkeley, went to law school back in DC, and then uh, came back out here after that. That's awesome. Now, how did you end up in the um, trust and estate world? I mean, in the in the and and the probate litigation and trust litigation world, did you? Uh, is that something you had in mind in law school? It's what I dreamed of from being from the time <laughs> I was years old. No, um, that's not true. I had no idea I was going to do this. I actually, my first job out of law school was working for a large law firm in downtown LA. Mm-hmm. And I joked about the Enron litigation, but I actually worked on the Enron litigation. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, wow. representing one of the banks. I was one of 60 lawyers on a huge team, uh, which was cool in a way, but it I sort of saw my future in sort of just doing those types of cases. And that like I wasn't going to get into court handling stuff myself anytime right. soon. Uh, and so I uh, took an interview with the firm I ended up joining, Loeb and Loeb. Um, partner, uh, Adam Streisand, hired me there. And uh, so we worked together for a number of years, and then I came over here. But I, I fell in love with it pretty quickly, because you're helping people in really difficult times in their lives. And it's frankly a practice that's going to be around for a long time, because there's two certainties in life, right? Death and taxes, and our cases straddle those, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So um, so it's it's good in that sense. But I also you get to help people through really difficult times in their lives, as I was saying. And, um, you know, if you can solve a problem short of trial, great. If you take it to trial, I love doing that too. But, you know, usually you can resolve them ahead of time, not always. And so uh, it's it's just been a great fit. And yeah, so it's been almost, gosh, been 18 years now, almost. So I've been doing it. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I find that too a lot because I talk to a lot of attorneys that are in, in, the, in the space, in the probate space, you know, they say one of the things that comes up a lot is that, um, uh, first of all, at Stanley Moss, I hardly ever go to court to do a confirmation where I don't run into people that I've seen and et cetera, et cetera. And it's kind of small. So people have to be rather as opposed to like criminal court where, um, you know, or, you know, civil litigation where people are uh, less uh, um, friendly. Uh, I've noticed that, you know, in, in probate, uh, people have a tendency to be uh, nicer to, to each other because you kind of run into the same kind of people all the time. It's a great point. Um, and it's actually something I do express as well to, to a lot of other people when they you know talk about being a litigator. Oh, that must be hard. You're fighting with people all the time. And yeah, I guess, but we are fighting with people in a sense, but there aren't that many of us who do this full time, you know? Right. Um, and so it's, it's and it's certainly before the pandemic, that was always my experience is that yeah. you'd go to court, you'd run into five to 10 people, you know, you might have a case against a couple of them. You may be on the same side with a couple of them. Right. You can sometimes get things worked out while you're waiting in court, you know, <laughs> yeah. a, a totally different case. Um, it was great. It's not, you know, unfortunately, there's so many more of these video appearances now. I mean, I still like to go down there when it's right, right. sometimes it doesn't make sense from a cost perspective, but sure. That, that's decreased a little bit, but still, it's a very close bar. Um, a lot of us know each other, and I think that's helpful in terms of getting things resolved when they can get resolved, and at least when you litigate it, having it be a little, you know, you, just, you, you get to the facts sooner, you get to the point, because right. you know the people on the other side, you kind of know how to work, even out the little issues that sometimes 
are around trial. So I, it's exactly right. Everybody, yeah. it's a club, but in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very nice. All right, let's end with a with a with a little fun note. I have a list of thirty questions. This is a back of the business card type of a thing. I want you to pick a number from one to thirty, and I will ask you that question. Uh, as a New York Mets fan, uh, my favorite player was Keith Hernandez, and his number was seventeen. Seventeen. All right. Okay. Yeah. I, I I actually like this question. Comes up, makes good things come up. Why were you given your name? Huh. That's a great question. So um, there's a book called The Great Gatsby, which probably a lot of, of your are aware of. And uh, my mother named me after Nick Carraway. Oh, wow. Very nice. Yeah. So your mother was a fan of uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. We still The Great Gatsby, yeah. So uh, so that's uh, that that's the story now anyway. Obviously, I wasn't around at the time. <laughs> but Or maybe I was around, but wasn't cognizant. Um, but yeah, so that that's that's the uh, that's the story. That's wonderful. Very, very nice. Nick, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. One more thing, I don't want to forget this. Um, we're going to have, you know, your firm's contact info, your business contact info in our show notes. Um, but I'm going to ask, you know, for the, the idea of this show, it's for people that are looking for trusted advisors such as yourself to be able to find you easily. So what is your preferred, with somebody that's listening, what is your preferred method, method of communication if somebody wants to get in touch with you? So you can either email me, though it's a mouthful, at nvanbrunt at shepherdmullen.com, which I'm sure will be in the show notes. Yes. You can also just call me at uh, 213-617-5472. And if I don't pick up, I'll call you back. Okay. That's wonderful. Um, Nick, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Bye, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode. Take care.